from Alison. And Nav. Welcome to the second episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News. listener, these Women Build podcasts aim to give women in the industry a voice, an opportunity to speak about the issues they face and compare experiences with others in the world of global architecture. Over the coming months, we'll speak to women architects to find out more about the issues that matter, highlighting some amazing projects and hear what needs to be and what can be done to support women throughout their architectural careers. Here in the UK, Black History Month takes place in October. It's an annual commemoration of the achievements and contributions of the Black community and raises awareness of racism. While there is now recognition that this situation needs to change and is changing to some extent, there are still barriers to overcome. So in today's podcast, we speak to three women. Gabrielle Bullock about what drove her to decide to be an architect at the age of 12, what her role as Head of Global Diversity at Perkins & Will entails, as well as her thoughts on the unique Destination Crenshaw project. Kimberly Dowdell, Principal at Hock and President of the National Organisation for Minority Architects in the US, and Elsie Iwusu, Principal of her practice and founding member and the first chair of the Society of Black Architects. Kimberly and Elsie will be talking to us about the challenges and support available to black architects in the US and the UK and how the coronavirus pandemic has shown up the problems of the built environment for some communities. And just a quick reminder about the Female Frontier Powered by WAN Awards. These new awards recognise the remarkable, talented and visionary women of all ages at all levels across the industry on a global scale. They champion best practice, identify new and established talent and celebrate the firms that are supporting these outstanding women, whatever their role. Entries are open until the 4th of December and winners will be announced in April 2021. All the details can be found at onefemalefrontierawards.com. So let's talk to our first guest today. Good morning, Gabrielle. Thank you for joining us. The project Destination Crenshaw seems to be putting a real marker in the sand in terms of publicising and celebrating the work of black community workers. Would you say that... First of all, perhaps would you describe it really, what it is, and also just the background of why Perkins and Will got involved, where the idea came from. Destination Crenshaw is a 1.3-mile stretch on a major boulevard in South Los Angeles here, which happens to be the largest African-American community west of the Mississippi River. And it started in response to the extension of the rail system, of the subway system. And unlike other areas in Los Angeles, the train was not below grade, it was not elevated, it was at grade. And so the community decided that, you know, since it's not below grade and we don't, they didn't want it to obliterate the activity of the major commercial boulevard of Crenshaw Boulevard, that they would create an experience that would both celebrate the culture of this community and provide a destination for visitors. And so it is an art and cultural experience, an outdoor experience, with a series of pocket parks and gathering spaces, incorporating uh, local artists, internationally known artists, telling the stories of this community. And was it easy to get community buy-in on that? Where did the funding come from? 
So the funding is mostly private through fundraising and some public. And so the client and the community, this, they, the community really is a co-design partner. We cannot tell their stories authentically unless we engage them and bring them to the table as a design partner. And they continue to be a core team member. And so it helps us design authentically, be culturally competent, and meet them where they're at and also understand where they've been. And we can't do that unless we engage them in a very authentic way. And has it been welcomed? It's very welcomed. It's exciting. The community is excited. And actually, you know, post, well, not even post-COVID, during COVID, you know, museums all over the world are reconsidering how they can operate, right? And so this outdoor experience has become an example for some other organizations on how they might continue to have art and cultural experiences until there's a vaccine and safe to, you know, operate inside. So let's go right back to the beginning. You were born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx, and from the age of 12, you knew you wanted to be an architect. Why? I, as a youth growing up in New York, recognized the disparity in the, particularly in the public housing for low-income people of color. And so the difference in the environment public housing projects were not very inviting they were not you know they didn't instill pride they were small and not very user-friendly there was not really a human element to them so at a very early age i could see the disparities and i being an artist i called myself an artist at that at that time i felt that i needed to do something to improve how people of color, particularly African-Americans in the U.S., lived. And that's obviously something that has stayed with you throughout your career to now find you in the role of Director of Global Diversity. What does that entail? What have you achieved since you took that role up? Yes, so it's clearly long-term and short-term. You know, this is not a sprint. It's really a marathon and it's a journey. So immediately it was clear that we were not all on the same page as to how to even talk about diversity and inclusion, let alone race. So training became very important, diversity training. So we engaged a consultant. The other thing that became clear was there was not uh, the, the demographics, right? So I'm one of 500 African-American licensed architects female architects in this country. So that's a pretty small number. And so the issue of racial demographics and the lack of diversity within the profession became pretty clear. So we adopted an approach to outreach to to bring awareness and access to architecture to students of youth, youth of color. And so those were very too clear. The, the longer view was how do we imbue the importance of diversity, inclusion, cultural competency in our work? And how do we look at everything we do in practice from marketing to clients to projects? How do we imbue diversity and inclusion in every area of practice? So, you know, there are two very clear 
starting points, but it really is a journey. And so we have a long-term strategy to adopt, to affect all the areas of practice. And what have you seen change in, in sort of recent times? I think what I've seen is that there's an interest, a curiosity, and a sense of urgency within the firm to understand how to break down the barriers of racism, of stereotyping, of bias. We can't unsee what we've seen this past summer and spring, particularly in the U.S., but I believe across the world, how racism shows up in our work, in our communities, and in society. What practical steps have you taken that have sort of brought this awareness more to the fore? Difficult conversations within the firm, both at a local level in each studio, but also firm-wide. We took a stand very early on this spring and said that we were going to double down on our efforts to increase, particularly the number of African-American staff. We're going to invest in the Black community so that we can be part of the solution and not perpetuate the problem. And you found that approach is working? Is there a resistance to that or does it need more effort? Does it need more funding going in? How is it working now? Right. So it's working fine. I think the challenge is not only for Perkins and Will, but other practices and firms is momentum. This can't just be a moment. It has to be a movement and movement, um, you know, says there's action. So the challenge is, is for us to keep our eye on the ball and continue to push forward with what we said we were going to do. And so we have a very clear strategy on how we're going to do that, and we're going to measure, you know, our progress. You know, our staff, This we're very transparent about what we say we're going to do, and so our staff hold us accountable. Our employees, it's, it's, not, it's not unusual for me to get a question or the CEO get a question, What are we doing about this? We said we're going to do this. What's the status? So we're fortunate, I think, in that we are so transparent and we are responsible to our our staff to make sure that we move progress. What do you think still needs to change? Is there any more sort of short wins, easy wins that you can see? Well, none of it is easy. Um, I do think that the conversation is much broader than Perkins and Will, which is good. You know, the profession at large is tackling this. Um, There's an organization, National Organization of Minority Architects here in the U.S., that is keen on putting these issues of racism, lack of representation in the profession um, in the forefront. And so, fortunately, the profession is garnering their forces collaborating on how to move the needle. Well, I think this is a good opportunity to bring in our next speaker. Kimberly, as the president of NOMA, what changes is the organisation putting in place? What sort of work is NOMA doing to raise awareness for the lack of diversity in the industry and to improve it? Yeah, so so NOMA is hyper-focused on, on building bridges with our industry peers, so other organizations like the American Institute of Architects, uh, the American Institute of Architecture Students, our National Council of Architect Registration Boards, our National Association of Architecture Accreditation Board, 
Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture. Those are our major partners in this work. So really looking at ways that we can work together more closely going forward to ensure that all of those organizations are advancing issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. And so then more specifically, one of the goals that we've set with the AIA's Large Firm Roundtable, which represents the 60 largest firms in North America, is we've established what we're calling the 2030 Diversity Challenge, which is geared towards doubling the number of Black architects in the U.S. between today and 2030. So currently we have over 2,300 and we're looking to get to 5,000. So a little more than doubling that number. And that's going to take a lot of intentionality. That's going to take, you know, working with those organizations that I mentioned, as well as working with the public to create more awareness around the pipeline to architecture. So for example, NOMA has a project pipeline summer camp for kids who are in middle school and high school just creating more public awareness of architecture as a viable profession. Uh, We certainly welcome all children. I think any person who wants to become an architect, they should have the ability to do so. But very often in communities of color, there's just not enough awareness. And so creating awareness and then building infrastructure to not only expose those young people to architecture, but also allocate resources to paying for or helping them pay for their architectural education, which is quite expensive. Here in the U.S., it it requires at least five, six, or seven years of formal education, depending on the path that you take. And then currently there are there are six exams and, you know, many hours of internship experience that are required. And so it's quite a heavy lift. And so I think that we have to leverage the different firms that are committed to this work, the organizations like NOMA, AIA, and others, as well as, you know, getting the, the general public rallied around this notion of having a strong and diverse set of architects to to make sure that we have, a you know, cities and towns and, and all, you know, types of built environments that uh, that really reflect who we are as a society. In fact, I believe it was Winston Churchill who once said that first we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. And I think that, you know, as we as we look at what the word us really means, I think it, it should represent all of us and, and, you know, everyone on the spectrum in terms of, of race and gender, uh, ethnicity, religion, you know, everything that represents us as a, as a people, as a global society. I think that having architecture better reflect our global community, I think is going to be one of the most important things that we can do to secure the future. I think it'd be good to hear from Elsie at this point as the founding member and first chair of the Society of Black Architects and as a UK-based architect in this discussion. Elsie, what sort of insight can you give us into the organisations here in the UK that are helping to improve the working lives of black architects? And also, what sort of a role do you think education has to play in improving diversity in the industry? The Society of Black Architects is a very, very lively forum, and I'm very proud of the way it's just been so resilient. People have been so resilient and have supported each other. But there are a huge number of people from diverse backgrounds who've just started organisations. There's the Paradigm Network, which is an incredibly lively group of young young people who support each other. There's Black Females in Architecture, which is fantastic. They have about 250 members from a standing start of from three years ago. There are lots and lots of little support groups and self-help groups, which are doing really, really well. But in order to grow, 
they, those like any businesses, they need support and they ought to be doing the work for which their talent manifestly gives them the purpose and the willpower to do. There is unconscious bias. I think that it's for the institutions to put in place a series of training, seminars, webinars, CPDs for their teachers, for their tutors, so that they recognize systemic racism when they see it, because at the moment they don't. I think it's clear to see that racial prejudice and systemic racism has had quite a large role to play in disadvantaging young black architects throughout their education and then going into their careers. I was wondering if you could give us some insight into how you think the built environment has disadvantaged the black community as a whole with regards to the coronavirus pandemic. As an architect, I mean, I can only speak from my own discipline, which is to say that looking at the statistics over generations, over 30 or 40 years, it has seemed, and I think it's confirmed by research, that people from black and minority ethnic communities tend to live in poorer housing accommodation. I think the other thing is that the African communities and the Asian communities that I know tend to preserve their extended families much more. I mean, the family structure is much more integrated than it is in mainstream British communities. And that combined with poor housing conditions, lower wages, just general lack of social mobility, I think probably contributes to that. And Kimberly, would you be able to give us some insight into how the built environment has negatively affected the black community in the US? Well, I think that the pandemic has really highlighted a lot of the health and and wealth disparities in minority communities. And I think that, you know, architecture is, is a container for the lives that we live. You know, here in the US, one of the things that we've seen is really just a magnifying glass on how difficult it is for minority communities to overcome the virus, given that so many people of color are, you know, frontline workers, you know, working in grocery stores, working in hospitals, working, you know, in areas where they, you know, simply cannot uh, work from home, uh, where many people have the, the privilege to, to do and, and stay safe from the virus. But then on top of that, we're seeing that the health disparities that, that are evident within minority communities makes the virus much more deadly. And so part of what the built environment can do is help to facilitate greater health. And when it doesn't do that, it actually obviously has a negative impact. And so, you know, one example of how the built environment can either facilitate health or, or otherwise is, you know, access to open space, proper ventilation, you know, any number of things that, that really foster, you know, greater access to the building blocks of, of a healthy lifestyle. And so healthy foods, nature, the proximity to the resources that are required for, for a healthy life. And so I think that the pandemic has, has shown us that, unfortunately, people of color, communities of color do not have that proximity. They don't have often healthy buildings that, that require most up-to-date technology and systems that facilitate proper air exchanges and, and things of that nature. And so, yeah, I think we just need to be more intentional about 
uh, the resources that are allocated in different communities and, and try to build a more equitable system. Uh, and a, a big part of that is not just the, the health gap, but also the wealth gap. Here in the U.S., the median net worth of a, a white family is over $120,000, whereas the median net worth of a black family is around 1200 And, you know, certainly it's a median, so there are people who are, are all across the spectrum. But in terms of just the, you know, the pure numbers that, that we're looking at relative to racial, those two specific racial groups, and certainly there are other groups to, to be considered as well, but th- that's where the greatest disparity is. And so it's much harder to facilitate healthier buildings and more up-to-date buildings and, you know, better access to resources when resources are so low. And I think that's what what needs to be uh, addressed. And that's not just up to architects, but I think it's up to policymakers and civic leaders to really help to address those disparities. So 52 years after the Fair Housing Act banned racial discrimination in housing, do you think that those disparities that you mentioned are still the lingering effects of redlining? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the the major building blocks of wealth in the U.S. context in particular is real estate. And if you were to calculate the loss that, that Black families in particular have experienced over the last you know, five or six decades, it's billions of dollars, especially even even today, there are issues with with appraisals where, you know, uh, homes that are occupied by black families, they're appraised at a lower rate than a similar home in a similar neighborhood uh, of a white family. And and so the, the remnants of that system are still very present today. Definitely the, the Fair Housing Act, you know, while it did address some of the issues, I think there's still many remnants that impact that those numbers so that I shared about $1,200 being the median net worth of a black family in the U.S. versus $120,000 for a white family. And do you think that architects are doing enough to bridge that class and wealth gap in these communities? The frank answer is is no, but I think it's a more complicated answer than that in the sense that, you know, architects' duty is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, particularly for our commissioned projects. However, if you're not commissioned to do work in a particular area, you're not, you know, you're not necessarily going to, to have the capacity to to do that work. So, for example, most of the commissions for architectural services, you know, happen in white communities or, or downtown cores or places where there are financial resources to pay for not just the architectural services, but also the real estate, the construction, you know, all the different parts and pieces that go into development. Whereas in communities of color, those resources aren't there. Thus, architects are not called upon. Now, there is a growing movement of um, public interest design where, you know, some architects are either spending pro bono time or, or charging, you know, a lower rate than maybe what they would typically charge or they might get grant funding to perform certain services. And so I think that's that's certainly you know helpful, uh, but we need a lot more of that. But it's actually up to, again, the policymakers, our mayors, our governors, you know, certainly our federal leadership to think about, not just think about, but actually take action to allocate financial resources in particular to communities of color so that the commission of architecture, you know, happens and it happens with a level of quality that all communities deserve. Thank you, Kimberly. Elsie, are you able to give a UK perspective on the same question? Do you think that the opportunity is there for architects to play a role in bridging the class and wealth gap? 
I think I think the, the opportunities and the challenges and the talents and skills are there in abundance in the diverse communities. But architects don't commission themselves unless they're developers. So the opportunities to create, in particular, affordable housing for those in need, the commissioning comes from local and central government. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Gabrielle, Kimberly and Elsie. And thank you to them for giving us their thoughts. We welcome your feedback on the pod. So please aim all your comments at wan-editorial at haymarket.com. These podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. So register, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are.